Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk to Strangers, the podcast where we explore the lives of people we don't know so well, challenging stereotypes, testing our assumptions, and ultimately building empathy through listening. In this episode, I speak to a black police officer right here in the UK. We talk about racism, we talk about how the police has changed, we explore what it's like to be an officer during a pandemic, and we also touch on a few disturbing stories. So this is your warning, if you are sensitive, then it might not be for you. Okay, let's get straight into it. This episode was recorded before the recent events involving Sarah Everard. There is a mention of the safety of women on our streets. And had we recorded our conversation after this terrible news, we would have gone into much more depth on this subject. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Can you hear me all right? I can, yeah, I can. Let me just put my headphones in. Right, fire away. Um, have you got your mic set up okay? It's all set up physically. Yeah. Okay, and now you just hit the big red button. I'm just hitting the red button. Yeah. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Excellent. Okay, so to start with, um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to, you know, just start off fairly easy and ask you, um, you know, what can you tell me something fun you've done during during lockdown? Fun? Had, um, oh, my God, fun. <laughs> uh, I suppose uh, fun... <laughs> The only thing I could sort of like think of that would be fun during lockdown was uh, uh, my youngest Lucy. Uh, she's now set up a, like a like a messenger video call, which about five of various different family members all dial in, and we sort of like uh, have a bit of a scrum down, which is a bit of a laugh and a giggle, a lot of banter, which to be honest we never used to do before <laughs> at all. To be honest, so I can say lockdown has definitely created that. And that's a bit of fun because we have a bit of banter, have a bit of a laugh because obviously we're not physically seeing anyone at present. So, yeah, and we find that that's good. That's good. It's good for everyone's morale because we have a bit of a gig and a bit of a laugh. So that's, that's a bit of a fun thing that I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been playing some games as a family. Um, yeah, online as, as best you can do, right? <laughs> yeah, because it's, it, it, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, people get a bit fed up with it all. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And I kind of just think, you know what, you just have to knuckle down and get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And so um, I also want to ask, so why why did you say yes to this conversation? I, to be honest, I was quite intrigued, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it, it, in my job, I do have lots of meetings and not so much public meetings nowadays, but prior to uh, COVID and stuff, we had loads of public meetings and stuff. And I don't know, it just, it, it sounded interesting because at the end of the day, from a reality point of view, you know, is anyone really asking my thoughts on things like COVID? Not really. Mm. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I'm saying? And, you know, mm. I just thought, you know, if someone's interested in my thoughts, I thought, okay, long as work permitting would allow it, which at the moment they're very much, yeah, yeah, social media, uh, speak to people, blah, blah, blah. But at the same point, they are cautious about what's being said and what's being discussed. 
So uh, I, I sort of thought, you know what? Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give my time if you were asking me. I, I felt kind of, kind of keen about it, to be honest. Good. Yeah, I mean, the, the podcast is all about really creating a space to listen to everyone, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're, you're on board for that. Yeah, I um, mean, pleasure to come. Good, good. Um, you know, podcasts and, and other interviews are so often pointed at people that are famous or have done something significant or, or you know, uh, extraordinary. And I'm, you know, by me, my name means saying, I guess, I guess the point is that everyone's extraordinary in their own way. And, and that's kind of what we want to shed light on and also kind of um, show, you know, um, through speaking to, to everyone that isn't, you know, isn't a named person, isn't someone famous um, and, and someone that can represent a particular identity. So it would be useful for me and for, for everyone else to get some context on a little bit more about who you are. Obviously, it's anonymous, but it would be useful to know what your age is, your ethnicity, um, how you identify, um, and maybe um, what class you identify with, um, and, and if you were brought up in the countryside or the city. Just a little bit more context, a kind of well-rounded context on who you are without, you know, obviously saying yeah. your name. Yeah, I mean, I'm black. Uh, I would regard myself as black British. Uh, I was born in the UK. Uh, my parents are uh, from Jamaica. Uh, they came over into the UK uh, uh, very early 60s. Uh, I was born in London, uh, but uh, my family moved to Luton because uh, my dad worked in Luton. So I grew up most of my life in Luton. I don't live in Luton now, but that's where I grew up most of my life. Uh, with regards to uh, my age, uh, I'm 55 years old. Uh, just your average type of guy, really. Uh, I mean, oh, what, what can I say? Uh, I mean, with regards to uh, family background, I come from a large family, like loads, loads of sort of, you know, Caribbean people. Uh, where I grew up, most of the other Caribbean families that I knew had various amounts of siblings. I mean, I'm from a family of six boys, uh, wow. which was quite challenging growing up, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, but you know, I look back with it with fond memories, even though things were, you know, sometimes difficult. I mean, my parents separated and divorced when I was quite young. So the bulk of my uh, growing up was just with my, my mother and my brothers. Mm. Uh, I mean, with the guys how I identify myself. I mean, just basic working class, you know. Uh, like I yeah. say, things were difficult when we was growing up, but that's the same for lots of families that we grew up with. Uh, you know, and like I say, I've got five other brothers doing all sorts of different, weird, and wonderful things. Uh, from my own sort of myself, I mean. Would, so you grew up working class. Would you still describe yourself as working class? Yeah, because I wouldn't say I'm middle class. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm middle class, you know. Uh, yeah, I would just say I'm just just working class, to be honest. Uh, okay, yeah. Because, you know, the, the way I would look at middle class is, you know, people kind of a little bit more affluent. 
Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I'm not broke. But at the same time, you know, I'm not buying, you know, expensive cars and having two, three lucky holidays each year. You know, mm. I'm like everyone else. I, I, I have a budget because uh, obviously, you know, I earn a reasonable salary. I wouldn't complain about that, but I'm far off from what I would consider to be affluent. Definitely yeah. so. Okay. So, uh, you know, th- for this episode, we wanted to speak to um, a black police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to ask the really sort of open question of what is it like being a black police officer? I'll be honest with you. Uh, I love it. Uh, I wish I had joined when I was younger. Uh there is nothing else I would like to do. Uh, I, I thoroughly love it. You know, don't get me wrong, there are challenges. Because I'm not naive. People say about racism in the police force. And I would say to them, look, if you're recruiting from members of the public and there's racism within the public, well, it makes sense you can get one or two people who've got some, how can I put it, iffy views. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. But, thing that I like about being in the police, uh, things that you might get away with in a normal civilian type job, in the police you'll get disciplined for. You know, comments that are made off the cuff, where in civilian jobs someone might have a quiet word with you, you will get disciplined for that in the police. So whilst I'm not naive thinking that every police officer is perfect and loves all races and you know, loves people of all genders and all the rest of it, you know. I'm sure there are people who don't have the same views as I do, but they have to keep them to themselves, you know, and their their work, them being professional, they have to stay professional because they'll get disciplined if they're not, and it's as simple as that. And the reality is police officers do lose their jobs for making comments, you know, I know people who I've worked with who have lost their jobs because of the comments they made about a particular race of people. So for me, uh, I in my uh, service, which I'm coming up to my 19th year next next month, you know, wow, I've I've <laughs> never really had an issue with someone saying something racist to me or being racist to me in any other way, directly or indirectly. But like I say, I'm not naive. I know stuff goes on. Mm. And you could argue sometimes mm. people have views and say things, but they just know their audience, which is fine. Because at the end of the day, you don't have to like me to work with me. You know? Yeah, okay. Do you think your journey has been harder because of your skin color? Uh, <laughs> That's a difficult one because you know within my job um, I've gone for other roles some I've got some I haven't it's difficult to say whether I would have got those roles that I didn't get if I was a white male uh, I mean I, I, I don't know I mean there have been times when I've spoken to people of a higher rank who I felt clearly there was an issue mm-hmm. but you know for me, it's not a problem. I just thought, okay, they've clearly got an issue and I'll just avoided them. So when I needed some assistance or advice from someone senior, I never went to them. Because I just felt, you know what, they've got an issue. Don't know whether it's my colour or they just don't like my face, but you know what? 
we'll, we'll stay clear of them. And you know, one thing about the police, you, you quickly learn those people who you can go to, those people you can trust. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I did. I mean, when I joined, I was the only, uh, was I the only black person? I think I was the only black male on the team. And there was an Asian guy on my team. Uh, and that was it. Now, you know, you do get treated different when, you, when you're new. But I think that's across the board. You know, whether you're, whatever colour race you are. And, mm. But at the same time, you do get some positivity. Now, mm. I regularly, even now, will, I don't know, be, I don't know, in a street somewhere and someone would say to me, it's nice to see a black officer. Mm. And, I, and that still happens now, which is a little bit sad. But I look around and then, yeah, but I look around the amount of officers we've got where I work now and, and there, there are several black faces. Don't get me wrong, it is nowhere near the amount that I'm sure the government and the commissioner wants. But you know, recruiting black people is a struggle. You know, recruiting Asian people is a struggle. Why do you think that is? A few things. Uh, for black people, I would suspect that police are viewed in a very negative light because more, more people will tell you about uh, a negative interaction with a police officer than will tell you about a positive one. You know? And we can all sort of like highlight the negatives, but the positives don't really get a look in, do they? Mm. Yeah, it's that negative bias. Yeah, exactly. And I just think, you know, I mean, I know police forces and the Met have tried to try and increase the intake of black and ethnic minority officers. Whether we're getting it right, I would suggest that's debatable, Mm. uh, to be honest. Uh, Yeah, that's very debatable. Mm. But, you know, so, things are changing now. Things are changing. Mm. So, I mean, I think one thing that people will be interested to know more about is the subject of institutional racism in the yeah. police. You know, that, that always comes up and I'm sure you're always asked about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what have you seen of that and, and, and is it true? I mean, it's a difficult one because when they say institutional racism... What they're talking about, that the organisation makes decisions based on people's colour, religion, sexual orientation. And I just think, how can an organisation make a decision on that? Surely that's an individual who makes that decision. So I've never quite understood the institutional bit. Now, if they're talking about lots and lots of, I don't know, people, senior people hold the same views that, you know, about a particular race or whatever. I get that. But to me, ultimately, who makes the decision on the day? Surely we should be speaking to that person. So for example, if I go for a job, okay, and I'm as qualified as the next person, but the person who has the power to say who gets a job has got an issue with black people. Now, should we be going to the organization or should we be going to that individual and say, you need to get with the times. Your attitude's wrong. You know, it's historic. 
that's not how we deal with things today. Should mm-hmm. not we be going to that person and speaking to them rather than just sort of like an umbrella institutional? Because it's almost like when once you do that, those people who make racist decisions get off. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, and I that's how I've really... always that's how I've always thought about it from from the very start when this whole institutional racism came about years ago. I thought, yeah, but. Who's gonna Who's gonna take the cop? Who's gonna get into trouble? And no one does, do they? <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think it's a really good point. Uh, some statistics would kind of, uh, you know, I, I was reading about how BAME minorities um, are unfairly, uh, you know, kind of uh, there's there's negative bias against BAME communities when it comes to arrests and and their. Um, treatment in the justice system. Yeah, I mean that's a fact. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't argue that uh, the, the stats don't lie. You know, and the reasons why it's like I I, I speak to uh, I've got good friends in the police, black, white, whatever. Okay, and we always have conversations because we're all sort of like sort of similar service. Two or three of them are about 25, 26 year service, and we speak about the things that you hear about in the news. Why is it? Uh, so many black men who are stopped in London for drugs are handcuffed compared to white men that aren't handcuffed. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a difficult one. And the sort of things that, you know, when I speak to my colleagues and, and also a little bit from what I see, I'm sort of thinking, so are they handcuffing the black guys more because they're a bit more intimidated by them as opposed to the white guys? Right, I mean, you're, you're afraid of what you don't know, right? Yeah, whereas they're more comfortable dealing with the white guys. So they're quite comfortable in stopping them and obviously ground permitting, searching them without handcuffing them. Whereas the black guys, even if they're calm and compliant, because don't get me wrong, the law does allow police officers to handcuff people prior to an arrest at this grounds permitting. But if someone's calm, compliant, they're doing this, what you've asked them to do, then for me, well, why are we handcuffing them? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you stop someone because you've seen him do a drug deal, fine. Is he calm, compliant? Has he stopped? I, I kind of think, well, why are you handcuffing them? And we kind of sort of discuss it on a regular basis and, <laughs> I mean, and the only thing we're coming up at, is it because they're so uncomfortable with the black males? So they take extra precaution by just have a blanket, just handcuff them. And, you know, I don't know. Have you seen that directly then happen and and sort of, uh, you know, brought it up with a a partner? Yeah, it it does happen. And I must confess, I I had a conversation with a, a new officer recently who had, had done that. And and I sort of said to him, you know, well, what's that all about? This guy's chill, the, you know, why have you handcuffed him? And I said, well, you need to, because then the handcuffing is an assault. You need to justify why you've in effect assaulted that person. Mm. And he and he said, well, I can, I can, I can justify that so much. I said, well, just, just run it by me. And the more I asked him, the more he was getting flustered. You know, and I, and I just felt he's just handcuffed him because he, he feels intimidated by him. So, you know, if he handcuffs him, he's got more control. You know, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, 
And it's a difficult one because it's hard to pinpoint why that is the case. But me personally, like I say, you know, I spoke to other guys who I work with and we kind of just think, you know, is it because they're a bit intimidated? You know, because black youngsters on the street do sometimes, not always, come across a bit aggressive. Not always, but sometimes. So it's almost like that assumption is, if I stop him, he's going to be aggressive. So therefore, I'm going to handcuff him just in case. Mm. And I say, look, you can't just handcuff people willy-nilly. You need to be able to justify why you've handcuffed them. Right. You know, and, and I think that's a that, that's a that's a difficult one, and especially for the newer officers who perhaps don't have the experience of dealing with all sorts of types of people on the street. Perhaps I have the confidence, you know, because obviously we all see newspapers, we all see the media about you know black guys stabbing each other, killing each other. We all see that, and maybe people get very conscious of that and think, oh, every black man I stop is going to have a knife. So therefore, I must handcuff him just in case. Right. There's a, a self-perpetuating kind of negative bias that comes through media too, right? When yeah. newspapers have an agenda to, you know, to reinforce a political agenda, which is, you know, one that maybe creates a negative view on, on minorities, then uh, there is going to be, even if it's unconscious, you know, because they've, people have seen you know, um, black faces on the front of newspapers and related to crime, then maybe there's this, uh, yeah, unconscious bias that happens there. Yeah, it definitely gets into the psyche. Uh, but like I say to people, I said, look, in all my service, I can count on my hands the amount of people that I've stopped for whatever offence and I've handcuffed them before I've arrested them. Mm -hmm. And people don't believe me. I said, honestly, I can now, people might say, oh, oh, I'm naive and stupid and I've just got away with it. And that's fine. But, and I say to them all the time, you know, and I know people say, yeah, but things are worse now than what they were 10, 15 years ago. Well, they are, I would imagine, in stats. But I remember being out on the beat and police officers getting assaulted on them quite frequently. You know, so I get what they're saying. But I still kind of just think, you know what, maybe it's because, you know, are we recruiting people too young? Because you can become a police officer at 18 and a half. Right. Personally, I think that's too young. Mm. I think people should go out there and sort of like, you know, get some life experience. Yeah. Before they become, but I, personally, I would like to see 2021. You know, because it's difficult. I love what you're saying there because your action of, of not handcuffing people before the arrest, before having means um, for the arrest, um, is, is basically a kind of representation of you trusting someone first, which is how our justice system is, is meant to work. Yeah, and I think, you know, you've got to speak to people. You know, you've got to speak to people, you know, explain to them mm. the situation. Say, look, I'm not going to handcuff you, but... You must do as I say, and we'll get this over as, as quick as possible. And, I, and tell them why you stopped. It's not unreasonable. And these are all things that we're supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to explain to people why we stop them. We're supposed to explain to people why there is a need to search them. 
you know. So it's not rocket science, you know. And mm. one of the things that we have now with body-worn video that officers have now, uh, for example, if someone stops and search someone, that yeah. action needs to be supervised, okay? They have to create a little mini report and they attach the footage of the body-worn video, okay? And as supervisors, we have to supervise them. So I see a number of videos of people and how they're stopping and searching. And I do see perhaps too many where the individual's been handcuffed. It's difficult because sometimes you might stop someone who you know is a gang member and always carries a knife. Now, clearly I would say to officers, right, if you're gonna stop and search him, you need to be on your toes here because he always carries a knife. And unfortunately, some people who mm. move in those circles are quite happy to attack police officers. So you need to be careful here, you need to be on your toes. And it makes it makes sense what you're saying because you you're saying that you know because there is some racism in society, it's mm. bound to trickle through to the police and that you know and, and absolutely particularly if it's unconscious bias like we've been talking about and uh, yeah I guess that's you know that's if it's present in society then it will be present in the police because there's such a you know the the police force is so large yeah um, and absolutely and you know these stereotypes are sort of instilled in us. I mean, I like watching American cop films. <laughs> yeah, but the reality is the bad guys, the drug dealers are always Hispanic or black, aren't they? <laughs> yes. I mean, well, yeah, there you go. That's a, a very... Well, and that sums it up, it? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, I think that happens in, in English. Um, yeah. I mean, at least it used to a lot more. Um, TV and film where... Yeah, the the criminal, the the evil character, the the person who's committing the crime would be of uh, yeah, by a bame. Oh, is that right. your parcel? Yeah, give us two seconds. Yeah, no worries. I'm interested. Like, do you do you ever feel like you're misjudged? Um, you know, by by your peers or or by um, you know people you speak to at your work, I guess, particularly. Sometimes, uh, sometimes, uh, I think the police is a funny sort of organisation. Uh, as soon as you start getting a little bit of promotion, sometimes people think you change because your views aren't the same as theirs because you've got to take a, a bigger picture. So whereas my officers will do something and to them it will seem like the right thing, I look at it from a a bigger picture so I would say well you know what I wouldn't have done that and then they'll argue the point and I said no 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 don't do that and I'll explain why but it's very difficult because they'll just think yeah it's a long time since you've been a PC I mean policing's like any job uh, it's good it's frustrating it's all that you know sometimes you get things that you should do and sometimes you don't uh, even though we're now starting to get new officers come through obviously 20,000 Cops aren't going to the Met, but the figure that's being banded about is about 6,000. So what that means is we get starting to get quite a few new officers come through, but we're, during the cutbacks, we sold every building we owned. Now we've got nowhere to put them because we haven't got the space. So that makes it even more challenging. Mm. 
So what do you think about that reform? Because I was going to come to that, you know, yeah, 20,000 more officers by 2023. Uh, Do you feel like that's what the police needs? It definitely needs more officers, uh, as a fact, uh, because uh, the cutbacks were quite drastic. uh, And I think even by us getting an extra 6,000, I'm not sure if that brings us back up to the levels that we were uh, in the sort of the early 2000s when we peaked. Mm. But we definitely need more cops because um, it, is, it is difficult because police, we deal with more things now than ever. It's like this. Can you give, this, us, can you give us a sense of that range? What, what kind of things do you deal with? Right, for example, uh, people with mental health issues. Right. That just ends up on our doorstep and mm. in a perfect world it wouldn't because they're not criminals mm. what they need is medical assistance but these other groups that have the numbers the facilities to, to deal with them so all what happens is a call goes into the police now now we've got to deal with it like for example uh, my officers will I'll get emails I don't know regularly from uh, the local uh, NHS mental health has mental health assessment team, mm-hmm. and what they do is they'll go out to individuals individuals in the community with a warrant from a judge. That's basically saying that they can go and do a mental assessment on that person in their home by force if necessary, and take them to a place of safety. Now they never have this sufficient numbers to do that in a safe way so now it falls to the police to go and assist them so now we have to deal with that it's like a noise nuisance noise nuisance is a matter for the council okay however Mm. councils across the country that have sufficient staff numbers equipment whatever to deal with that so what happens is noise nuisance becomes a police matter and the way it becomes a police matter is people will call the police and say, my neighbour's playing music, it's two o'clock in the morning, I can't sleep, I've got to work. And then as soon as you say it's a council matter, they will say, yeah, they report the council, the council speak to the police. And we'll say, yeah, but it's not a police matter. And then say, oh, and by the way, I think they've got cannabis in there. <laughs> so now it's a police matter. Right. So I mean, we'll it's... spend endless t- amounts of days, hours dealing with stuff that's not really a police matter. What What have you learned um, from being you? You know, through your nineteen years of, I don't know whether you call, do you call it service in the police. Yeah, I mean, service, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm told from other colleagues, uh, you know, I, I deal with people well. You know, and I just kind of think, you know, if we can just all be chilled and have a conversation about it. Let's do that rather than let's have a fight about it. Mm. You know, uh, and that's the sort of thing I try and get across to my officers. And I totally appreciate not everyone's as comfortable doing that. You know, not everyone's as comfortable speaking to people. Uh, you know, so I, and I get that, but I just think we need to communicate really if we want to police successfully. If we're not communicating, uh, we're struggling. And uh, when I think about the problems that we have, things that I see that are negative, a lot of it comes down to 
because we're not speaking to people properly. Mm. You know, uh, at all. And, you know, I, I know things happen because I see things happen. Uh, but we need to speak to people better. Uh, we need to explain what we're doing, you know. End of the day, we have the power to do it and there's no two ways about that. But we need to explain to people. Uh, it's as simple as that. But then again, people need to... We've got into this era of social media where everyone, you're dealing with a situation and everyone gets their phone out. Right. I've got no problem with people filming me. But to give you an example, uh, uh, we assisted uh, the local mental health assessment team to go to a house where they had to section someone. Uh, the, yeah, must have been terrible. Yeah, and this individual was a lady and she was screaming and creating all the rest of it. And a guy came up outside the address and started to film. And I said, look, could you please give the lady a bit of dignity and don't film? And he said, no, I'm filming because of police brutality. Mm. And I said, well, what are you talking about? It's not police brutality. We're only here assisting the mental health assessment team because this lady's in some real distress. And he wasn't having it. So he's filming away. And then eventually when uh, we managed to calm this lady down and the medical people, uh, they have like an unmarked ambulance to take them off to get assessed. He started to realize and he said, oh, I didn't realize, I'm sorry. I said, well, I told you already. He said, well, if I knew that, I wouldn't have done it. I said, but I told you. They're like a trust there. And and I think we have this mentality where we just get our phones out and film. Uh, We don't do, I mean, you must have seen uh, early last year when we had the first wave of COVID on national TV, there was one where a police officer uh, stopped and searched someone. And it was quite a dynamic stop and search. I don't know whether he had Intel or whatever. And it was at the stage where it was a bit big debate about masks, how much protection, all the rest of it. Anyway, the officer didn't have time or he forgot to put his mask on. And a group of members of the public are gathering around him or giving him abuse mm. because he was searching this black guy and he had no mask on. And the officer is trying to explain to them, but they're not having it. Anyway, the officer basically recovered a massive knife off this guy. When I say massive, honestly, it was huge. It was scary. Mm. But they still wouldn't, they, they weren't interested. All they was interested in the fact that he had stopped and searched him because he's black and he didn't have a mask on. And, you know, I kind of think, well, you can't win now, can you? You know, because I would suggest people who carry knives like that won't hesitate in causing injury to other people where they feel it's necessary. And that's you and I. That's your loved one, my loved ones. And, uh, you know, I kind of think, well, look at that knife. Surely, for the sake of the mask, he was right to stop him in order to get that knife off him. But, you know, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, because to me, that's obvious. Well, and it's so much is taken out of context, isn't it? When you film something, you know, I used to be a photojournalist and I recognise very quickly that I can tell a story in the way that I want to through how I photograph it or how I film it. Absolutely. Uh, what I choose to capture and what I choose not to. Yeah. Or 
you know the yeah how i how i edit it together um mm. and i do i have a lot of a lot of sympathy for police officers where you know the vast majority i recognize are are here to serve and are here to to protect us and and to do service you know um and uh, you know there is yeah there is i think a lot of resentment i think that's built up over generations mm. Mm. um this moves me on quite nicely to um uh the all cops are bastards sort of movement um i'm interested to know what you you feel about that like i i hadn't heard of it honestly before um this week and i spoke to my girlfriend and she mentioned it and asked um asked me to ask you about it I mean, I've not seen that one in detail because there's so many of them now, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I've seen various uh, websites where it's almost like it's anarchy. Uh, I've seen one where they're saying defund the police. So, uh, and I kind of think, hmm, that'd be interesting then, defund the police. <laughs> but I mean, I've not seen that one personally, but tell me, tell me about it. What's it saying there? Well, I mean, I, th I think it's, you know, as we're talking about, it's a, a representation of, of that um, built up hatred for mm. police and the institution. I don't know. I didn't read into All Cops Are Bastards, but I imagine yeah. it's... Uh, it, it it's one kind of the usual of... ones that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the way I look at it, I totally get that, especially if you and your family have had negative experience with cops. But, uh, I mean... I say to some of the young black guys who sometimes, you know, uh, we have a conversation where they say that I'm wrong because I'm a police officer because the police are all racist and they beat up young black guys and they don't do things correctly. And I say the same thing. Well, if it's so bad, okay, why don't people like yourself join and start the change? Hmm. Because you can't change it just from the outside slinging mud you know mm. join join become a police officer because at the end of the day if police forces up and down the country struggled with racism it makes sense the more ethnic minorities you get in the police force I would suggest the less racism you're going to get because these ethnic minorities will eventually start filtering through to senior management and so on where decisions are being made mm. But if we're all just on the ground floor saying racism, 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 it needs more than that to change it. Yeah. No, you know, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. The police isn't perfect. Fact. It isn't perfect. We all know that. But I would just think, what kind of a mess would we have if we had no police? The strong would survive and the weak would get brutalised you know and then you know when for example your girlfriend wants to walk down the street without anyone interfering her someone who's bigger than you stronger than you is going to go and interfere with her because he's bigger and stronger than you hmm. I, I just want to move on because I'm aware of time okay. Um, okay. the Black Lives Matter movement um, mm. last year that kind of well it, it became um, yeah. a lot more present here last year mm. um, physically were you a part of that or did you police that at all uh, I wasn't a part of it per se uh, I've got my views like more people black people white people whatever 
uh, I think it's important to get the message across that all lives matter. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement is about that. I think sometimes people get a bit hung up on the name of it, Black Lives Matter, like that's suggesting that other lives don't matter. Mm. And that's not the case. To my mind, when I see that, I think what they're saying there is Black Lives Matter as well, as opposed to Black Lives are some sort of, I don't know, some way secondary to white lives. And people get hung up with that because I've had discussion with various people and they say, yeah, they're saying that their lives matter and our lives don't. I said, no, no, no. That's not how I see it at all. I think what they're saying is they just want black lives to be looked at the same as white lives. Right, yeah. Because all lives matter. You know, a white life is as precious as a black life and vice versa. Absolutely. I, I want to go back a little bit just to, in terms of like, you know, you're talking about, yeah, violent clashes, uh, protests. I'm curious whether in your 19 years, have you ever experienced um, anything traumatic as a police officer? You don't have to speak about it, of course. And I'm also curious, you know, you could just say yes. And what support did you have if, if, the, if you did? Yeah, I mean, things now are a lot better than what they once were. Uh, there's a big support network within the Met now. Uh, where officers, I'll give you an example. Uh, just for Christmas, I think it was a week before Christmas, uh, went to a call, uh, basically, uh, mum, uh, daughter and son. About half 11 midday, mum sends daughter up to wake up son. Daughter comes back down. Daughter's about, I don't know, maybe about 11, 12 comes back down saying he won't wake up and he's cold. Mum goes up, boy's frozen, not responsive. Calls ambulance, call police. Uh, a couple of my guys get there. By the time I get there, they're doing CPR. Mm. That's about, about 13, 14. Anyway, the guys are doing CPR for about 20 minutes, half an hour, Elias, the ambulance service turn up. Oh, about five minutes, they pronounce him dead at sea. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not good. Just before Christmas, uh, the guys who have done CPR on him have worked tirelessly. Because that was thing, another thing with COVID as well. So, you know, CPR is so tiring. You know, you don't want anybody else to have hands on for fear of COVID. Mm. So you're trying to limit people in the building, in the house, sorry. You're trying to limit officers having contact because of, you don't know about COVID, who's got COVID, who hasn't. And, and that's traumatic because, you know, the mum's in a terrible state. Relatives now are trying to get the house. They're in a terrible state. There's a big crowd outside the house. And that's very traumatic, you know. I mean, fortunately now, we have things in place now where, you know, afterwards, officers are debriefed obviously take to the side, offered, you know, support. We have all sorts of support networks, whether it be charitable or within the Met, to try and make sure that officers are okay. Mm. You know, you know, I've seen a few things in the service. And so, uh, yeah, things are going in the right direction, but you do see some traumatic stuff. Uh, mm. uh, I can remember being at a scene where uh, I 
toddler was trapped underneath a double-decker bus. Oh, God. Yeah, unfortunately, because it's police, you, you know, you come across and you deal with all sorts of stuff. Eh? And, you know, the, the, the reality, you have to just focus on what you're trained and, uh, and, and do what you can, you know. Uh, and it is sometimes challenging, you know, especially when, when you knew. I can remember the first time I went to uh, uh, a situation where uh, a son couldn't, hadn't seen his mum for a month. She hadn't responded to call, broke in. And she, she had died and she had been sat on the sofa for about three weeks in August and she had virtually melted into the sofa. Oh, gosh. Oh. That, I'll never forget that. And so what, what support do you have in the police then to, to deal with that yourself? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff we have now is online stuff uh, because of COVID as well. We have a lot of online support, so you can tap into online and you can speak to people. And if you're really struggling, they'll ring you or they'll, they will, if need be, arrange counselling for you. You know, most cops tend to sort of like, uh, yeah, I'm okay. And just crack on. Really? That, yeah. And what, what, do you th- what do you feel about that? Well, as a supervisor, I always like, you know, grab people and sort of like have a little one-to-one with them and just say, look, at the end of the day, if you're not feeling great, it's not a problem because, you know, it's expected, you know, just because you got a uniform, don't make you some sort of superhuman because it doesn't, uh, mm. you know, and sometimes, sometimes, you know, depending on what type of person you are, sometimes you just need a bit of quietness, you know, and literally you dust yourself down and you come back the next day. You know, uh, but we just like to make sure that we offer and we're speaking to people. You know, do you need someone to speak to? Do you need a little bit of time out? You know, because at the end of the day, we are cops and we have to come back the next day. But, you know, you need to look after your cops. And that's what I always try and do with the officers that work with me. Just try and look after them. Uh, because at the end of the day, everyone's going safely. And I don't want any of the cops I work with to break. And if you're not managing them, make sure they're okay. You know, everyone's got a breaking point, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, well, when you're exposed um, to that kind of thing, it's going to be... Yeah, because, because training don't prepare you for it. Mm. They tell you about it, but until you witness it, it's almost like it's not real being told about it. Mm. You know, but when it's real you know it's real and you know and it, and, and it can be really challenging for some people some, so some people don't want to do that type of policing anymore what's what's your coping mechanism then how do you how do you cope with that kind of thing how do you process that to be honest I'm probably the worst because I don't ever seek any help or uh, <laughs> guidance I'm probably the worst of the worst to be honest I, I honestly I literally just come home, literally dust myself down, perhaps have a glass of wine, and I say, tomorrow's another day, and, and just crack on, and I'm probably the worst. But I do play a lot of golf, so that maybe that helps me unwind a bit, to be honest, because uh, I like being out in the fresh air, just, just, just chilling, to be honest, and I have a good social network, but obviously COVID, I've not been socialising for about two years, but there you go. <laughs> 
but mm. yeah yeah I, I'm probably the worst uh, I don't access anything like that at work but I never have uh, she's a bit naive really but that's just that's just just me is there a, a mentality of, of kind of that old fashioned sort of stiff upper lip you can get on with it you know kind of macho I'm in the police I can I can deal with it I would suggest that that kind of stuff's virtually died a death now to be honest uh, because most people realise if your cops are broken your team your unit's not going to function so it's best that we look after our cops because if you look after our cops you know it makes them happier, more productive, and also they'll last. Because if you overload people with stuff, it's just a matter of time before they say, you know, I can't cope anymore. There's no shame in sort of, you're, you're a breaking point. You know, so if you are, I'd like to think that I would have realized that before you got there, because, you know, I speak to my guys and, you know, see how they are, watch what they're doing. So if they get to that, I didn't realise that's a little bit of a failure on my part anyway. Mm. You know, you've got to look after your people. Um, mm. So what what would what do you want to change about the police? What what do you hope for the next sort of ten years and for the police force? For me personally, uh, I mean, for me, I would like to perhaps look at recruitment. Yeah, I mean, I'll retire in the next, I don't know, four and a half years. I'd like to think I have an opportunity before I go to work in recruitment, because I do think we, you know, perhaps not quite getting there when it comes to recruiting uh, minorities. So that's something that I would be interested in. Mm. Because, uh, because we are struggling. We, I mean, the government give us uh, targets about the amount of... Uh, visible ethnic minorities we're supposed to have in police and I don't think there's any police force across the country are hitting that target so what what would you want to say if someone's listening now who is from a, a you know a, an ethnic minority who's considering the police or, or maybe just considering different careers what would you want well, to funny. say to them well it's funny because they might have done good things in the past I, I remember when I joined after I'd done my application all the rest of it even before I knew I had been accepted, I got a phone call from some recruitment asking me what I want to come up for the day. And this was something that they targeted at the applications that were from people from ethnic minorities. Right. And this was and 20 I, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And hmm. I literally had a day at the yard where there was uh, a couple of officers who were from ethnic minorities. There were people there uh, from recruitment and they were discussing ways to make sure we got through the application process things that we need to look out for and they also arranged for me to spend a day with two officers out on the beat hmm. so you know so we, we do do some good things but I just think we're at, we're at an area now where we just can't get particularly black men to join so and, what, what would you, know, you say to those black men I mean, personally, I mean, we have schools officers. Schools officers are police officers. Every senior school in London has a facility where they can have a designated police officer. And that's there to try and break down the barriers between the young people and the police because they start realizing that 
the police officer in the school becomes like a member of staff. So someone who they can speak to, relate to, talk to. Mm. And that's a good idea. That is a good idea. But I think mm. sometimes we need to go more. I mean, we need to have workshops where we go to colleges, where we have officers from an ethnic minority group sitting down, have an open discussion with a group of black guys. What their thoughts, why they want to join the police, what they would do to make the police better. Mm. I think we need to start breaking down some of those barriers because it's so much us and them. You know, yeah. and I just think if we could somehow bring things back where, you know what, I'm a police officer. But first and foremost, I'm a black man. You know? Mm. And that's what I am, regardless of where I'm a police officer. You know, and I think people seem to feel that once you become a police officer, you're not the same. No, I am the same. I just won't let you off because you're robbing people. That's the only difference. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, but barring that, the things that your mum taught you, the things that you've seen as a young man, my mum taught me, I've seen them all. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. You know, you think racism's bad now, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> do, you know, do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's not like now, you know, when I grew up, you know, walking down a high street, people drive past and shout the N word at you. And I'm talking about adults, not children, adults. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember there was a pub that was in the high street. You couldn't walk past it at night. Because if you walk past at night, and the guys in there saw you, they would chase you. And this is when and this is when I'm 14, 15 years old. Do you think that drove you to become a police officer? I don't know, I just think, you know what, like how everyone says, and everyone, everyone complains, don't they? Everyone complains about stuff. What are you gonna do about that? What are you gonna do about that? And that never gets done. And they just got the same way, I thought, you know what? I'm not gonna complain anymore. I'm gonna join. <laughs> because you complain and yeah, but what are you doing about it? I can play. Well, actually, I can do more than that. I can join. Mm. I really, I love that attitude. So I joined, you know, because that, that's just reality. And I think sometimes we need to have discussions with some of these young black guys when they talk about race in the place, okay? You know, well, what are you going to do about it? You can do something about it. You know, it's easier to change from within than trying to change it all from the outside. You know, the more black Asian officers you have at a senior level, the bigger the change. You know, the bigger the change. Yeah, I think that's a really important statement right there. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we'll see what happens going forward. But, you know, I'm sure that this period of violence that we're having at the moment, like everything in time, it changes. But mm. unfortunately, I still think we've got some ways to go before we can get this change uh, with people so bent on stabbing each other to death, shooting each other to death, about people selling drugs here and all the rest of that. Yeah, I think we've got some time to go before we can say that, we're turning the table on that, which is sad.
do you see that as my, my assumption is that that is a representation of a broken state you know that people are choosing crime as a means of economic you know means um, mm. rather than it being so much of a choice you know um, is that what you see on the front line I want to test that assumption I've not written academic studies on this kind of stuff uh, I only go by what I see and you know you're always going to have those people who are doing it to make money because you know they see people who have nice clothes nice cars all the rest of it and they want some of that okay and some people aren't prepared to work hard in order to get that they want to do the old shortcut route and instead of working 10 years hard to get where you need to be to have all of that they want it now mm. so you always have those people but then you have the vulnerable people the youngsters who are manipulated in selling drugs on behalf of these other people who don't get the choice because mm. some of them are basically you will and if you don't now you're in trouble and that and that's difficult because you know if you live in a particular area on an estate and these older people are telling them you will sell drugs here there and you will get me x amount per day you know it's difficult for you to fight that and you know that's the sadness of it because not everyone who sells drugs wants to sell drugs How are you doing for, for time? Um, I don't want to take too much of your day off. We, we, we got a bit more time. Okay. So, I mean, an, another thing I want to ask you is, do you ever find yourself in a position, um, or have you ever found yourself in a position um, where you're doing something you don't want to do as a police officer? Yeah. Uh, over the years, sometimes that happens. Because at the end of the day, it's a discipline service. So that's a kind of a do-as-you-told type industry. So yeah, uh, yeah, I can remember during, uh, do you remember when we had the bombings at the tube station? Yeah. That was a bit of a crazy time. Uh, I can remember sort of after that, then we all went terrorism mad. So basically uh, we would be regularly on minibuses and sent off to areas where either tube station or possible sites that the powers that be deemed would be somewhere good for a terrorist to strike and we were sort of like basically told to go out and stop and search people on the terrorism act right and, and to me I kind of just think yeah but I can remember being you know uptown and you know, just tourists everywhere, and being told you must come back with stop and search under the Terrorism Act. And I'm sort of looking around; they're all tourists. Do you know what I mean? How can you say to me to go and come back with X amount? Surely, if I'm stopping searching because I suspect that they are terrorism, and I'm looking for something on them that's going to confirm that, and all I can see is tourists, you know, Japanese tourists. You know, people from the States. And that becomes difficult uh, because when I came back without them, obviously, then I tried a, a conversation with my, I was a PC and my sergeant. 
who wasn't impressed. Hmm. And I'm saying, well, but I don't believe any of the martyrs. Well, that's not well, the so you actually you you actually stuck stuck with your values there and and, and yeah, didn't come I just back thought, with. I didn't, I, said, I didn't see any terrorists. <laughs> and, uh, and don't get me wrong, you know, uh, and, you know, most people came back with numbers like I was instructed to do. And I just thought, uh, hand on heart, did I see anyone who I suspected under the Terrorism Act? No. And I just thought, you know, if I'm going to get a verbal kick in, I'll take the verbal kick in. Mm-hmm. Because, I'd, honestly... Don't get me wrong, I'm not an expert on such matters, but I didn't see anyone who I felt was looking a bit suspicious. Credit to you. Massive credit to you, I think. Because I think if, you know, if it had been a different officer in your position and, and there was pressure and that was, you know, and, and people were randomly stopped that were identified, then that, you know, that in itself could be a bit traumatic, especially as a tourist in a new country. Yeah, I just thought, you know what... I mean, don't get me wrong, people did come back with numbers mm. uh, because, you know, who likes taking a, a, a verbal kicking? Nobody does, do they? Mm. I took a little bit of verbal kicking and I thought, okay, fine. Oh, that's fine. Because they can't order you to do it. Is that right? You can't... You can't they can't be... order you to do it because you, the person doing it, you need to justify the grounds why you're doing it. Mm. now if you're saying you can't see any grounds well you can't do it now if a colleague says oh could you search him because I've seen A, B and C and I'm searching this one well clearly you can search them from the grounds that officer's just given you so I've always had this thing I've always had this thing like that whereas you know Oh, let's go and search these. Well, I, I don't see any grounds. If you want to search it, you crack on. That's that's really interesting to me because that's that's a real clear difference between, you know, the way that uh, someone you know in the military would get an order and they would be directly reprimanded if they didn't follow that order. Whereas in the police, you're using your own judgment. Yeah, you, the police is do as you're told, but you've got to use your own initiative. You've got to use, you've got to justify your own actions. So they can't tell you to stop and search him, you know, because you have to stop and search him, so you have to justify. You can't, like, say if someone complains, why do you search him because uh, the inspector told me to? You're under pressure now because the inspector told you to, so what you should be doing is, Gov, uh, what have you seen? Why am I searching this person? And then the governor should be able to say, Mark, could you search him because I've seen him do A, B, and C, and I suspect he's carrying. Just because the yeah. governor don't like him, and he tells you to search him, you still need to have grounds. Mm. And if the governor's got no grounds, you've got no grounds, you can't search him. Let's, let's talk about that liability a little bit, because I imagine, I mean, I, I was a lifeguard years ago and one of the first things we were taught was that you are responsible even if you're trying to save someone's life if you do it wrong you're going to get sued and that yeah. was kind of the attitude and I imagine that's the same for the police and that kind of position of service is that is that how it is and, and is that a pressure that you're feeling often yeah it is definitely because end of the day you're the individual that have done whatever you've done and you need to be justifying it if you can't justify it the job will not back you mm. 
at all. You're on your own. It's like if you do something that they haven't trained you to do, they won't back you. You're on your own. Yeah. It's like when uh, officers who have been around a little bit and they start doing things the way that they think they should be done. I was like, okay, you crack on doing that. But just remember, when it goes wrong, you're on your own. Because mm. the job was say that's not how we taught him. Is there a good sense of community within the police? Yeah. Different to how it used to be. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, and also it depends where you work. Like where I work now, I work, uh, it's like an out bar. Mm -hmm. So lots of people drive in. So as soon as they finish, they want to get in the car and drive home. When I worked in Islington, hardly anyone drove in. So more often than not, people straight after work, oh, should we go and do that? Should we go and do that? So before you know it, half of you are going to have a, a quick pint or something. So it, yeah. it, it kind of feeds that social bit with your colleagues. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't get me wrong, I did say we still work in sort of like more central areas in London. That still goes on. Not so much on the outskirts, sir. Mm. Well, I'm just aware of um, aware of your time. So, what I'd love to do to finish is just a couple of quick fire questions. Um, Go on, that I have. What are three things you can't live without? Oh, can't live without. Yep. Uh, right, golf clubs, <laughs> uh, glasses. Because I can't read anything now because I'm so old. Got ya. And a good bottle of wine. There you go. Um, when do you feel most alive? Uh, when I'm out with my friends. Oh. Love it. Socialising, love it. Uh, big social animal. Uh, miss it loads. Oh. Right on the end of Corona. Yeah. <laughs> What's the uh, most adventurous thing you've done in your life? Crikey. I'm not that adventurous. Join the police. There you go. Must yeah. be. Yeah, must be. <laughs> Surely. Because none of my what's, friends are police officers. <laughs> what's inspiring you right now? Uh, at work, good new officers. Hmm. That's good. Mm, good new officers. And we have a few of those, and, and that's really good to see. What's your best piece of advice to give others? Yeah, don't just whinge on about how bad things are. You know... At the end of the day, we all have a certain amount of power to do things. Do something. You know, don't yeah. just like what people do. The police are all racist. Do something. Amen. <laughs> yeah, do something. Here's to the doers. Okay, last yeah. one. How would you like to be remembered? First of all, just as a good dad, really. Got two girls. I'd like to think that they think I'm okay. <laughs> And, you know, from, there, from a personal point of view, definitely is a good dad. And from a work point of view, I like to know people think, you know what, he was all right. He was a good sergeant I worked for. So, yeah, as opposed to we hated him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that, that would cover it, really. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I, my I girls can really tell you. What was that? My girls, really. Um, as long as, uh, yeah, the girls, they're, they're, they're important. They're important, yeah. definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, 
And finally, like, is there, is there anything else you want to say? Is there anything else you'd like to share? You know, with with ever, anyone listening. Only only is podcast is all new to me. You know, uh, so it's been a pleasure. I, I, I'm keen to listen how it all works out because obviously. I can't say that I've ever done anything like this before, you know. <laughs> you did great. I think you did really well. So, yeah, well, I hope so, but we'll see. I'll, I'll let the girls have a listen and see what they think. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you came across really well. You were just talking about how you'd like to be remembered and, um, you know, as a good officer. And I can, I can tell, you know, that you have already been, you know, an amazing officer. The, the fact that your values come through to your position of, of, you know, authority that you've been gifted, I guess, or given by the state, like, that says a lot, you know, you, you clearly, you really care about being kind in this role and serving others. And I think that that really comes through. That's good. You, you've got to care, otherwise, to me, you can't do it. If you don't care, it's not the job for you. Mm. You know, if you just want to pick up a salary, there's other jobs you can go and do that. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, that's that's it. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful for all your time. I know we went we went way over what you said. So thanks being for being so generous. Oh, with it was time. good. It was good. It was good. I enjoyed it. Good. I enjoyed okay. it. So yeah, pleasure. Well, I've learned a lot, and um, and I think others will too. I think it is so interesting getting your your perspective, your viewpoint, and and you know, particularly from someone that's been in the police for so long um i think it's it's reassuring um and and enlightening really um so thank you so much pleasure pleasure I, like i said I'll, I'll look forward to sort of like listen to the finished article <laughs> yeah yeah I, I really wish you all the best in your you know final what four years five years of service four and a half years four and, and half then i'm retiring years. to play golf <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well it sounds well deserved all right then okay. cheers it's been a pleasure Take care. thank you bye-bye all right bye wow well there we go um what a inspiring um and an insightful conversation um i feel just so blessed to to have the honor really of, of speaking to strangers um like that and and getting such a first-hand experience and and perspective of someone's role and their stories i really hope you enjoyed that as much as i did and you know if you did really enjoy it then please do share it with your friends we are you know so reliant at this early stage of people sharing it with people that they think would enjoy it too and of course do leave us some some positive reviews as well if you have a couple of minutes that makes all the difference that just leaves me to thank our incredibly committed team we have alex our editor we have vicky the assistant editor we have hannah the producer we have emma our composer and we have andia our illustrator and i've been pasco and i can't wait for the next conversation with a stranger and to share it with you This podcast is brought to you by gigfunding.org. Gigfunding is a non-profit that is bringing a brand new way to fundraise for causes that you love. You can hire local skills that you need or volunteer skills that you have and all of the money paid goes to charities that you choose. So say that you need a dog walker for your little pooch, you can pay 20 pounds for that hour of 
dog walking. And that £20 goes to a charity that you choose as the hirer and the other person chooses as the volunteer. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for coming along on this ride with me, speaking to complete strangers. And um, I hope you tune in next time. I've been Pasco, your host. And remember, don't be a stranger.